take your copy of God's Word and open to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. I went back and looked, and April 7th, 2019, I preached Psalm 1. We began a study through the Psalter by preaching one psalm a month, taking the day off of our normal study. Right now we're in the book of Acts, of course, and preaching a psalm. Today we reach the one-third point of our study through the Psalter, God's hymn book. We've reached Psalm 50. I hope that you have enjoyed this study. Let's read Psalm 50. A psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief... You are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers, who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50. Most commentators offer a very simple outline for this psalm. Verses 1 through 6 
are essentially introductory, summoning the people to judgment before Yahweh. Verses 7 through 15 contain the first indictment against Israel, essentially charging them of mere formalism in worship, empty rituals behind which there is no heart of faith. The last section, verses 16 through 23, indict Israel for transgressing God's law. The Decalogue, specifically the Ten Commandments, specifically the way that they treat their neighbor. But some of these commandments obviously are beyond that of the Ten Commandments as we saw things like slander even mentioned there. The superscription, which is in the Hebrew, it simply reads, A Psalm of Asaph. We know a little bit about this man. We don't know a lot about him, but certainly not as much as we know about someone like David. But we know a little bit about Asaph. This is actually the first of 11 psalms penned by this man. Interestingly enough, the rest of them are grouped together. Psalms 73 through 83. That's the the beginning of book 3 of the psalms. This one sort of sits by itself. That That placement of this psalm at least ought to give us a clue that the psalms are arranged the way that they are on purpose. It's not like they just tossed them into the air and boom, here they are. No, they're they're the way that they are on purpose thematically. Back in 1 Chronicles 6, Asaph is mentioned as one of the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. So he's a song leader. In the temple. Later in 1 Chronicles 16, it says that Asaph was appointed chief minister before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, specifically in song. So without question, Asaph was a, he was a leader over the music at the temple. He's actually called a seer later on. 2 Chronicles 29 and 30 calls him a seer. That just means he was a prophet. We see a prophetic nature in his psalms. So again, we know a little bit about Asaph, but not as much as we know about a man like David. There's no occasion mentioned here. We do have that sometimes. We know why a psalm was penned, when it was penned. There's nothing like that here. If I were to title this psalm, I would title it True Loyalty to Yahweh. True loyalty to Yahweh. This this psalm actually charges Israel with unfaithfulness to God and man. Though they were following the letter of the law. You you, you can see that as you, you work through here. They're following the letter of the old covenant law and God still says they are unfaithful. We'll talk about that as we move forward. All right, let's work through this psalm. It's it's a good one. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So it, it begins here with three titles. For God. The first one in Hebrew is, is the word El. In the ESV here, it's translated the Mighty One. It's really a, a general term for God. It's actually occasionally employed in the Old Testament to speak of 
pagan gods, heathen gods, gods that are no gods at all. It's just like us saying God. It's very, it's very general. The next word is, is Elohim in Hebrew. Here it's translated God. It, it also is used generically sometimes. Sometimes it's used to refer to, to heathen or pagan gods. But when it does refer to the God of Scripture, it refers to Him as God the Creator. He is Elohim. He is God the Creator. But in case you had a doubt as to which God is being spoken of, Asaph leaves no doubt with this last title. He uses God's actual name. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the way that our English translations designate the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. This is God. This is not Baal. This is not Molech. This is not one of the gods of the nations. No, this is the true and living God, and His name is Yahweh. Yahweh speaks of God's character. In other words, it speaks of His self-sufficiency. I am that I am. I am who I am, we might render that. God is self-existent. Nobody created God. God is the Creator. He has always been. God is the covenant-keeping Redeemer God. All of this is found in the name Yahweh. And it most certainly contrasts the true and living God with all of the pagan gods that man worships around the earth. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, Yahweh summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. That's everywhere. God summons the entire earth here. Nobody is outside of this. He summons the earth to witness His judgment of His covenant people, Israel. We have no doubt as to who God is judging here. Verse 7 makes it crystal clear that Israel is the one being judged. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. God is testifying against Israel. But He's calling the earth to pay attention. So the nations in this case are called as witnesses. Now I'm not suggesting that the nations are somehow not guilty. That is not at all what's going on here. But Israel has transgressed. God is calling them to account. And He's telling the nations, look on, pay attention. So God's presence here in verse 1 is seen shining forth from Zion, Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, Asaph says, and God is coming to judge. Verse 3, our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Go, excuse me, gather me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge Selah. Selah is usually just a, a musical term. It's like a pause in music, and it's just saying, stop here. It may be implied that he's saying, now you just stop and think about that for a second. 
what has just been read. So we've been looking at the Psalms of Korah over the past several months as we've worked through the previous Psalms. And in those Psalms, one of the complaints was that God was silent repeatedly. God was silent, especially in the midst of affliction or in them being attacked by their enemies. But here in Psalm 50, God is not pictured as being silent. He's pictured as not keeping silence. But this is probably not what they wanted to hear. Before they were saying, Lord, you're being silent and we're being afflicted. Here, God is coming to judge His people. This is not what the people of Israel actually desired. Look at the scene of judgment too. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. You almost get the feel of Mount Sinai. When the people of Israel had had come out of Egypt and God was giving His law, God gave the law through Moses and there were thunderings and lightnings and the the earth quaked and the people shuddered in fear. fear. That's the feel that you get here as you read this. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. And in in addition to the nations being called into judgment, or to this judgment, God summons the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. God calls all creation to sit in this courtroom, as it were, witnessing the entire proceeding. So who are these faithful ones here? Well, these are those who declared themselves to be faithful. These are the ones in Israel that believed they were being faithful. They're defined here as those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. You may recall in the book of Exodus chapter 19, Moses brought all the people the word of God's commands and then they as a nation in one voice declared all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And they didn't. They said they would, but they never followed God, really. They had a few ups, but they had a whole lot more downs in the history of the Old Testament. The faithful ones here aren't really to be found, not as a nation. Not as a nation. There were some faithful ones in Israel from time to time, but they were always a small remnant. They weren't the majority. I just point you to the Old Testament historical books. That's easy enough to figure out. God Himself is judge and the heavens declare His righteousness. In other words, God has the right to judge His creation. He is God and we are not. He has the right to judge them, His covenant people Israel. And creation itself declares His righteousness as judge, right? The heavens declare His righteousness. God is not going to judge wrongly. God is going to judge fairly. That's not necessarily good news if you're on the wrong side of God because that means He's never going to forget any of the wrongs that you did. 
you see. Verse 7 begins the charges then against the people of Israel. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am, your, I am God, your God. Listen to this. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So again, this is, this is the first of two charges brought against Israel in this psalm. I am God, your God. This is reminiscent of the Jewish Shema. That's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. You've heard it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. It goes on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is the Jewish Shema. The foundation of that verse, that instruction, by the way, recited daily by the adherents of Judaism, even today, the foundation is love for God and loyalty to Him. You shall love the, God, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That implies that you will be loyal to Him. We're going to see as we work through this, this is the farthest thing from what the people of Israel are here in this psalm. That's why God is charging them the way that He is. In fact, they're, they're charged here with being ritualistic in worship. But just hold on to that thought. We're not there quite yet. Notice first, they were bringing the proper sacrifices. That's pretty significant. Because there were times in Israel's history where they weren't. But in this instant, they were. God says here, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. See, the right, the right sacrifices are coming. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God, God does not rebuke them for failing to bring the sacrifices. They were bringing them. In fact, it says here that their sacrifices were continually before God. Of course, we know they had daily, weekly, monthly Seasonally and annual sacrifices, they all had to be brought. They had the motions right. They were walking through the particulars of sacrifice as they were instructed. Today, that would be like making sure we immersed when we baptized. I mean, I think we should. That's what the New Testament teaches. Or, or that we use... You know, wine and unleavened bread at the Lord's table rather than Pepsi-Cola and soda crackers, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a proper way to carry things out. They were following the letter of the law, but their sacrifices are still rejected. Notice what God said, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. In just a second, you're going to see clearly why God did not accept them. But suffice it to say, as humans, we just like a rule to follow. That is built in us. We like a box to check. 
something we can do to appease God's wrath. I think this psalm is clear already. Religious formalism is not enough. They were doing that. They were bringing the right sacrifices. Religious formalism is not enough. It leaves the worshiper unchanged. God is not obligated to us because we adhere to the right religious motions. I'm not saying they're not important. But they were bringing the things God had told them to in the law and it was not enough. You know, I fear that a lot of people today think, even in conservative circles, more on that later, I think a lot of people think that today. As long as we walk through the right things, God's got to take us. That's not what he's saying here in this psalm. Now let me explain something to you before we move on so this this makes better sense to you here in this psalm. In in the pagan religions, and remember, at this day, everybody around Israel was worshiping pagan gods. Some of their problem was that they had taken part in those pagan rituals of the nations that surrounded them. And in those pagan rituals, the worshipers believed that their sacrifices were actually supplying their God with something He needed, like a meal, for instance. And though Israel seems to be at least following the right procedure here, the the letter of the law, we know from Old Testament history they were heavily influenced by those nations around them. So maybe... Israel had the idea that they were giving God something he needed. That seems to be the case by what God says here in this text. But God doesn't need us to supply him with a meal. That's silly. He's God. Notice verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all of the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God did not need their sacrifices. Those were His animals they were offering. And again, listen, His very name, Yahweh, declares that He is self-sufficient. He has no need The God of the Bible does not need anyone or anything. The flip is true. We need God. He doesn't need us. That was true of Israel. It's true of us today. Now, along that line of sacrifices supplying God with something He needed, notice verse 12. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. That's clear. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the blood of bulls and drink the blood of goats? See, that's what the pagans thought they were doing. Giving their God something He needed, something He needed to eat. God says, do you you really think that's what's going on here? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God says here, if I were hungry, if that was even possible, and it's not... But if it was possible, you'd be the last one to know. God wouldn't tell us. God has no need. He didn't need their sacrifices. 
Humankind adds absolutely nothing to God when we worship. This is for us. We don't make God more God because we sing to Him. We don't make God more God because we pray to Him. We don't make God more God because we preach His Word accurately. We should do all of those things. But God is not more God because we do them. I remember Steve Lawson quoting J. Vernon McGee a number of years ago. I actually had to Google this quote to find it and make sure that I got it right. Anyway, here's what Brother J. Vernon McGee said decades ago, I'm sure. Quote, friends, this is God's universe, and so you're going to have to do things God's way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have your own universe in which to do it. Amen. He goes on to say this, quote, Then just go on and create your own universe and come up with your own rules and run it, uh, run it the way you want. But until then, you're in God's universe, you're on God's planet, you're breathing God's air, and you're drinking God's water. End quote. Amen. Amen. That is precisely what God is telling Israel here. I don't need anything from you. This world is mine already. You need me. God isn't eating the flesh of bulls. He's not drinking the blood of goats. Now what what God desires from His people was this sacrifice of thanksgiving. Worship that comes from the heart. The right rituals, the right ceremony is worth precisely nothing if it's those rituals you're trusting in. God provides those rituals to tell us what we need, not what He needs, you see. And God promises here to answer those who call upon Him by faith. Now here in verse 15, when it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, it's quite possible that this refers specifically to the future day of trouble that is coming upon Israel. Jeremiah 37 refers to that time as the time of distress for Jacob. Or if you were reared like me on the, the old King James, it renders it the time of Jacob's trouble. God promises then if they will call up on Him, He will deliver them. He will make them glorify Him. God caused us to be born again, Peter says. That time, according to prophets like Jeremiah and, and, and Zechariah and others, is a terrible time unlike no other. And God will actually use that time to bring Israel nationally to repentance for what they've done to Jesus, their Messiah. So He's promising them if they will call upon them or call upon Him in faith, He will hear them. There are certainly hints of the new covenant here, worship that is rooted in the heart. Let me put that off though. We'll come back to that here. In a bit. 
So the second indictment of Israel is seen in the next section, beginning with verse 16. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. This time... Rather than talking about ritualistic worship that he's talked about in the first indictment, here God charges Israel with rebelling against God's commands, against God's words, specifically violating those commandments that relate to loving your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, this is the same people back in Exodus 19. Who said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they didn't. I'm not saying we did. We didn't either. But here, this is specifically speaking to them. They took God's Word and they tossed it aside and they did whatever they wanted to do. Yet apparently, they still used biblical language in some way or another, reciting God's statutes and taking His covenant on their lips. They talked to the talk... But they didn't walk the walk. True faith, true loyalty to Yahweh, actual heartfelt worship always results in obedience. But they had refused discipline, which God not only did through the written word, but through prophet after prophet after prophet that God sent to them, telling them to repent or else. But rather than listening to the prophet, they defended the thief. Rather than following God's word, they supported the adulterer. Their actions actually proved that their religious ceremony was a sham. It was nothing more than external formalism. By the way, if you recall Romans 1, there Paul indicts Gentile nations explaining what the judgment of God looks like on a people group. Uh, I assume you're somewhat familiar with that. After God defines sexual sin, sexual perversion, specifically there, lesbianism, homosexuality, He finally mentions about every other sin you can possibly think of as proof that a nation has come under the judgment of God, which means we're in it now. We're not waiting on it. We're in it. Anyway, here's what he says at the end of Romans 1. Romans 1.32. Paul writes, quote, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. End quote. That's precisely what's going on here with Israel. They are giving approval to the liar. They are giving approval to the thief. They are giving approval to the adulterer. Here in Psalm 50, it's not a Gentile nation like Paul is talking about in Romans 1. It's his covenant people, Israel. By the way, listen very closely to me here. If you support that deviant behavior, today we call it affirming. If we are LGBTQAI+, or whatever, 
Why don't I just put the whole alphabet on there? Affirming. If we are gay affirming, then we have the very characteristic of the people that God has promised judgment to. Listen, we need to repent of those type of beliefs. Turn to Jesus in faith. Otherwise, you can expect the judgment of God. That's the message of Psalm 50. That's the message of Romans 1. All right, let's move on. Verse 19. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charges before you. James says, Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. He goes on. He says, It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That's what's going on with Israel here. Psalm 50. Did you know, by the way, 25 years of pastoral ministry... The most common complaint that I have received by far has not been what someone did or what someone believes. By and large, it has always been what someone said. Guys, we can do a lot of damage with our words. A lot of damage. And because of that, we must learn to control our tongue. That is a mark of Christian maturity if we can control what we say. In the case of Israel here in Psalm 50, they were committing all kinds of sins with their mouths. Slander, false accusation, false witness. They were using their tongues in precisely the opposite way that we should be using our speech. But God was long-suffering to them. He kept silent. He says so. Look, these things you've done and I have been silent. But they mistook God's silence thinking it was disinterest. Thinking that God was just going to sweep it under the rug. That He was just going to let it slide. What they failed to see is that God was being merciful to them when He was quiet. He was being long-suffering. They had space to repent during those times. Especially when God was sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, to tell them they were breaking His law. But they didn't listen. Verse 22, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So we're getting to the main point. The psalmist says, mark this, or it could be rendered, consider this. This might be the call to wisdom section of this psalm. If they do not repent, 
If they do not get rid of the religious formalism in worship, if they do not stop proving that it's mere ceremony by their actions, if they didn't turn to God in true loyal faith, inescapable judgment is coming. That's what the Lord says here. Lest I tear you apart, God says, and there be none to deliver. Listen, somebody may save you from the mouth of a shark down at the beach, but when God decides to judge, there's not a human being that has ever lived or will ever live that can save you from the wrath of God. Judgment is inescapable apart from faith in Jesus. And in their case, as the chosen people of God, as as God's nation, they needed national repentance and, and a commitment to love God as the law demanded that they do. There were still a few Jews who believed. We know Asaph did. But as a whole, they were unbelieving. And God is calling on them to repent as a people group. The true worshiper follows the law. The true worshiper offers the proper sacrifice. But that worship must be the fruit of thanksgiving. That's that's what he's saying to these people that were living here in this day. In other words, proper external worship is the extension of proper and true internal worship. Faith, we might rightly say. So if you have proper faith, then you can rightly worship God. You can't rightly worship God, though, unless you have true faith. To the one who comes to God then by faith, he will receive the salvation of God. But make note, we are not received by God due to our formalities. We are not received by God because of our ceremony. God receives sinners by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ plus nothing. Nothing. Old Testament saints looked forward to Jesus by faith. We look back to Jesus by faith. But salvation is the same for everybody. Alright. Let's transition smoothly into the application section of the sermon. The learning to live section. What does this psalm mean? We, we see what it meant to them. How do we apply it according to the right interpretation? Alright, first and foremost, there is a clear implication of the new covenant here in this psalm. If we don't get anything else, we need to get this. Jeremiah 31, in that section on the new covenant... God says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, same covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's the new covenant. In our day, the new covenant has been inaugurated. 
We live this side of the cross. Jesus has died in the place of sinners. He's been laid in a tomb and He walked out. Three days later, God accepted that sacrifice. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated hell. Jesus defeated the grave. Praise the Lord. Even a Baptist may say amen to something like that, right? But not everything we see in the New Covenant passages have come to fruition. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 both talk about the future restoration of Israel when they actually, as a nation, embrace their Messiah. But today, we, as New Covenant believers, have been grafted in, especially as Gentiles, and we do worship God in spirit and in truth. And that is what God is calling for here in Psalm 50. The setting aside of mere formalism, strict ceremonialism, we might call it, as if that's why God accepts us. God desires worship from the heart. Now listen closely so you don't go out and misquote me. I am not saying... What we do doesn't matter. I am not. It does matter. We should strive to do what the Bible says, the way the Bible says we should do it, but not apart from faith. That's what was going on in Israel in Psalm 50. They had the motions, but they didn't have the faith to back it up. You know, we often think about liberal antinomianism, anti-law, people who want to live how they want to live. They want to check church off the list each week, go on and live life like they want with no regard to the Lordship of Jesus. And that is true. There are hordes of people that feel that way today. But that doesn't really affect us because we aren't liberals. We are more conservatives when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. Like that's the side of the fence that we're on. And there's danger over here too. We we, we need to stop thinking there's always just danger over there. Because there's danger with us too. On our side of that liberal conservative line, the hyper-conservative formalist is so focused on the ceremony that he fails to see that true forgiveness is only found in the finished work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Listen, we can focus too much on the techniques. They matter. But there's a point when we've gone too far to the point that we actually think God accepts us because of our proper worship. That's what they thought here in Psalm 50. That is a foundational misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God accepts us through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and nothing else. And so we worship out of that heart. We want to do things right. We want to follow the Bible. But because we love God and we want to honor Him, not because He needs our formality. Look, let us remember what God told Israel here. Anything we might bring to God, like, I don't know, music. It's His. He created music. 
He made the notes. He gave us the book to preach from. But we're not, this is God's word, not our word. It's God's music. It's, it's not ours. God doesn't need us. The sacrifices under the Mosaic Code were not for God. They were for the worshiper. That they might re, you know, understand and realize the gravity of their sin and their need for a Savior. And listen, guys, worship today, though it is certainly rightly due God, and we ascribe glory to God in worship, He doesn't need it. He's not more God because of what we do. Judgment's coming. It's a fact. Not only for Israel, as depicted here in Psalm 50, but for every person. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant was, was inaugurated, set in motion by His blood shed on the cross. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He said, This is the new covenant in my blood. He's the only way. And if this psalm shows us nothing else, it should show us that even our best religious service is worth nothing in comparison to what Jesus did on the cross. What we do matters. But it's not why God accepts us. God accepts us because of the work of Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. I hope and pray that you believe that today. Okay, that's one sermon down. Lord willing, we will sing a couple of songs and we will get to song, uh, uh, sermon number two. Stand with me if you will.